Let's look at our scripture reading this morning. This comes to us from Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. Part of the Sermon on the Mount, again today, as we're looking at. Follow along as I read this passage. Matthew 5, 13 to 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Lord, we come to you this morning thanking you for this word, for this Sermon on the Mount. Lord, I remember sitting on the shores of Galilee, near the place where Jesus would have spoken this message. Lord, it moved me to know that there was a time many years ago that Jesus was there teaching the people this message. Lord, move us even this morning by the power of your word today. Use Pastor Addison as he speaks to us that we might hear these words today, the words you have for us. We lift you up, O Lord God. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it is truth and we can rely upon it and trust it because you are true and it is true. Thank you, O Lord, for all this now. We pray this in your strong name, thanking you. Amen. You may be seated. I want you for a moment <clears throat> to do exactly what Jerry actually just did. Just imagine a place, uh, something in your life that was memorable. For Jerry, it was his recent trip uh, to, to Greece and, and the different places that he has been. Just imagine a place, a person, a meal, something that was memorable. Perhaps it's the beauty that you were struck with by the ocean as it hits the sand on the seashore, the trees and the sound that you can hear, the wind as it moves through them. Maybe it was the taste of a meal so extraordinary that it will never leave your tongue or your mind. Perhaps it's a person, a relationship. They're memorable to you because of the characteristics of who they are the way that they love you despite all the things they know about you, the way they're just there when you need them. Perhaps it's an experience that you had with your kids or your parents that's memorable. Think about those things. They're unique. They're set apart in your mind for various reasons. All of us have different ones. 
I have a, a laundry list of them. I could share them, but we only have about 30 minutes to get through this sermon, so I won't. These things are set apart in your mind because of how they impacted your life. They were distinct in a way that only they could be the thing that is rooted in that memory. They're unique. They're recognizable against other things that look and sound and feel and taste similar. This is what Jesus is telling the disciples to be. That's it. He's saying, be distinct. Be salt. Be light. Stand apart from the scenery. Don't fade into it, but instead be recognizable for your qualities, for your characteristics. Be memorable. This is what this little passage, Matthew 5, 13 through 16, this is the heart of what Jesus wants us to feel and to see and to experience. He moves out of the Beatitudes and gives us these characteristics of what it looks like to follow him, what it looks like to live a life where we're hungering for thirst, or we're thirsting and hungering for righteousness and truth. We spent two weeks looking at what, what that means for our lives and how Jesus is inviting us to, to resemble that. And then now Jesus comes in in this little in-between passage because what comes in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is just more explanations, characteristics, examples of what it looks like to follow Jesus in this world. Here, he is challenging the disciples. He is challenging those who would follow him to be distinct. Why? Why is he doing that? Because at the end of the Beatitudes, there is a realization that when you live a life that is distinct, you're going to suffer. There's going to be persecution. It's going to look a lot of different ways in a lot of different cultures and a lot of different times. But the truth of the matter is, when you stand out, you will suffer. When I was in college, I pledged a fraternity. And when you're a pledge in a fraternity, at least when I was a pledge in a fraternity, it was not a very pleasant experience. You didn't feel like you ruled the world. You felt like you served those who ruled the world. And there was a little thing that we would say amongst our pledge class, don't stand out. Just don't be the worst. Don't be the best. Just be somewhere in the middle because that is the easiest way through. That is not how we are called to live. We are not to shy away from challenges, from persecution. We're not to shy away from being distinct. And that is what Jesus is challenging the disciples, what he's challenging you and I today to be. We are not to shy away from living distinct lives. He's not being cryptic. He is not hiding his meaning in this passage. He's being straightforward with these two sayings. You are to live in a way that people will recognize you. You'll be memorable for good or for ill. We were just talking before salt, and we'll talk about its uses as we get to it. A little bit too much salt, and it kills things. Not enough salt for those that need it, like you and I, and that's not good for us. It's just the right amount of salt that is needed. 
we're to live in the way that Jesus has challenged us and showed us to live. He's outlined it in the Beatitudes, and then he's going to give us more examples throughout the sermon. And here he is saying, be my disciples, live like I am, walk like I walked, live a life like I have lived, because he certainly was persecuted. He certainly was mocked and scorned as he dined with sinners, as he uh, touched the untouchable, as he loved those that were not lovely, as he entered into messy relationships all for the sake of the kingdom. Mock and scorned, hung on a cross. That's what he's asking all of us as his disciples to enter into. So he gives this passage and these metaphors that we might be able to just press on, that we would fervently live the Beatitudes because the world is watching and they need it. They need to see these things. But he reminds us that it's not for our good. It's not for our bottom dollar. It's not for our social status. It's not for any of those things. It's for the glory of God. Straightforward, for the glory of God. We live these things that God might be glorified. So he gives two metaphors, and we're going to look at these metaphors, and we're going to see there in the outline you know, that we are, you all, y'all are the salt and light that can lose its taste in luminescence, called to participate in kingdom work for the glory of, the God, for glory of God. And here's how one author puts it. I really like this quote. Jesus' teachings here in 5, 13 through 16 are instructions to go forth into the world as heralds of the new covenant that Jesus is effecting. To be a disciple means to be an outward-focused agent of the kingdom, inviting people to glorify, to honor, and to love God. I'm going to say that last sentence again because I think it's really important. This is one of the takeaway messages for today. We are to, to be a disciple means to be an outward-focused agent of the kingdom. In other words, we're not just looking inside at ourselves. No, we're looking out into the world, inviting people in to glorify God. So in these metaphors, Jesus speaks to our identity. He speaks to a diagnostic tool that we have to check ourselves. And then he also tells us what our calling and our purpose is. Those are the three, as a way to sum up those three points. So Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world. These two statements are remarkable, and they're statements of identity. He's saying, you are salt, and you are light. Look, there's a lot of uses for salt. We just talked about a couple a few minutes ago. You can overuse salt, and it can kill things. I've done that on my grass as I've salted the ice, and then the snow melts, and I'm like, what's that little spot there? Oh, it's probably because I put too much salt, and it got pushed over there. But we use salt to melt ice here. We use salt mainly for seasoning and for flavor. I don't know about any of you, but I've got multiple types of salt in my cabinets. Garlic salt, pink Himalayan salt, table salt, kosher salt, all the different types of salts. They too used salt as a seasoning in the ancient world to flavor the food that they were eating. They also used salt as a preservative this is one that's a little bit foreign to us. I'm sure you've heard a lot on it, so I'm not going to talk too much about it. But they would take salt and they would pack it on to meat so that it would keep for a longer period of time. They could preserve their meat because they didn't have refrigeration. And they didn't live in a place like Grand Rapids where you could just stick it outside and it'd be fine for most of the year. 
They use it to preserve. There's other uses that we see in the scriptures too. In the Old Testament, salt was used in covenants. People would take salt cakes or they would put salt on bread and they would eat it as a reminder of a covenant that was bound, that they were bound to. Here is what one author says uh, that the primary use of that. He concludes that the most fundamental idea is that of permanence. So when you'd eat these salt cakes, we'd eat this bread with salt on it, it was a reminder to you that this covenant was not something that was going to go away. It wasn't temporary. It wasn't uh, going to vanish in a month or in two months or a year. It was something of permanence. So when applied in the Old Testament context, he goes on, this refers to the permanent covenant between God and his people. And then in Matthew 5, right here in our verse, the disciples are a sign of the new covenant uniting Christ and those who are called to salvation. Sign of loyalty. You can read about that in Leviticus, Numbers, different couple places. Salt had many uses, still has many uses. Light has one. One that's applied in a lot of different ways, but salt pushes back, salt, light pushes back the darkness. You have light that people may be able to see when it is dark. That is why you have light. Of course, in the scriptures, light is also used as uh, as a, a, a metaphor, if you will, for truth. So when we talk about light, it is talking about truth. But light primarily exists that darkness may be pushed back. There's a great verse, Isaiah 42, God speaks of light in parallel to how it's to be uh, used through Israel for the Gentiles. He says, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness, I will take you by the hand and keep you, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. These are statements of fact they're not you should be or you ought to be or you can live into being light and you can live into being salt, but you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. It is talking about, Jesus is talking about our identity as disciples. And both are remarkable. But the light statement, I think, is even more remarkable because what do the scriptures say about the light of the world? When we hear that, what do we normally think about? Well, we think about Jesus. We go, if you flip, if you have a Bible, look at John 1. Some of you may know this off the top of your head, but this is just a great passage where John is here talking about Jesus in the beginning and talking about Well, I'll just read it for you. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John here is saying that in Jesus, as he comes into the world, He is bringing life for men and women. He is bringing life for humanity because he is the light that shines in the darkness. Later in John, in chapter 8 and chapter 9, Jesus makes the I am statement that I am the light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world. But here, Jesus says, you 
are the light of the world. Do you see what's happened? Jesus has placed himself on us. Jesus has given us his identity to be the light of the world. We have been marked with Christ. We have been marked as his disciples, the characteristics that come out from that. We've been lit with the presence, the glory, the mercy, the grace of Jesus because we as disciples of Jesus are the lights of the world. I think that that is utterly remarkable. The scriptures talk about this servant, this suffering servant in Isaiah that is the light that will shine to the nations. Jesus claims to be that very light. And then here, when he's talking to his disciples, he says, y'all are the light of the world. You go and do as I am doing. Push back the darkness. So what does that look like? What does that mean for our lives? Real quick, I'm going to make sure I'm not, I spend too much time on this because this, this stuff is really good and we can go on for a long time on it. John 17, so later in John, when Jesus is facing the cross, he's praying, he's praying about his disciples and he's praying about the world and he makes some really remarkable statements. So John 17, I'm going to start in verse 20. He says, I do not, so he's in his prayer, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory, that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I am them. Or do you catch what's going on? Jesus is praying about his disciples, and he's praying to the Father and saying, look, I want them to be so distinct in this world, and I want them to be so bound together by my glory. I have put my glory on them. I've given it to them. I've given them my characteristics of who I am that they might be bound together. They would be marked by these characteristics together. That the world would know that you sent me. That the world would know that God is real and true. Just think about the disciples. Jesus is calling them to be knit together, to not argue, to not want to kill each other, to not post negative things about each other on Facebook, to not write articles about each other, they are disciples. They follow Jesus together. Now think about two particular disciples. Think about Simon the Zealot. So Simon, sort of right-winged, thinks that the kingdom is going to come uh, in a very forceful manner. That's what it meant to be a zealot. Uh, you know, very, very, very much Jewish, just wants the kingdom to come uh, with force. And then think of Matthew the tax collector. He's 
practically a Hebrew turncoat, who's working for the Roman government and, and taking the, the hard-earned money off of his fellow people, breaking Palestine. These two disciples are now called to have a relationship with one another that is like the relationship that God and Jesus have. Did you catch that? These two people who are basically on the opposite aisle of each other, as far as you can get, are called to be so close that they mirror the relationship that Jesus has with God the Father. It's remarkable, this identity that God has given us through Christ, that those two people would be able to come together and proclaim the same name, serve people through that name, die willingly if it calls to that, for that man, for Jesus, for God. It's remarkable. And it's a remarkable statement of identity for you and I. So we've been lit with a shining light of the glory of the risen Christ. Christ now lives inside of you. That's the invitation for us to delight in this truth, to recognize that that's our primary identity as disciples of Jesus. We have the truth in us because Christ has given it to us. It's remarkable. I don't know a better word for it. One of the things that I really love about this passage is that Jesus makes these amazing statements. He says, you are salt, you are light. And then what he doesn't say is, now let's study and put a theology paper together on this. Let's create a committee to figure out how we should then live as salt and light. He says, go and do. Go live out your good works that the people may see. Now, I am not throwing committees under the bus. They have their place. I am by... I'm a Presbyterian, so I have to like committees to some degree. But he says, live it. Live it. Go and do your good works. Now, as he continues on, we spend a lot of time there, but as he continues on in these statements, he says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand as it gives light to all in the house. So he continues the metaphor, and he says that salt can lose its saltiness and that light can be hidden. What's Jesus getting at? There's pages have been spilled about what does Jesus mean here. And it, honestly, I think it's really hard for us to know exactly what Jesus meant. We can intuit some things and we can use scholarship to help us understand better with the uses of salt and the use of light what Jesus might have meant. Jesus, or here is, here's how one scholar puts it. I think he did a good job of kind of summing up that thought. Since it is virtually impossible now to know which of its several associations would have come most readily to the minds of the disciples when they heard these words, it may be best simply to take the metaphor broadly and inclusively as meaning something that is vitally important to the world in a religious sense. As salt was vitally necessary for everyday life, thus the disciples are vitally significant and necessary to the world in their witness to God and his kingdom. Disciples are by necessity of being salt to perform 
certain tasks, to preserve, to add spice and flavor to life, to remind people of the covenant and the kingdom. And as light, they are with a certain task in mind to shine their light forward. But Jesus says, these things can be lost. In other words, this is the diagnostic tool. Jesus is holding up a mirror for his disciples to look into it and to say, does my life look like Jesus's? Does my life reflect the Beatitudes that he just taught on? Remember, they're hearing these things from him and some teachings up on the mount. And so he is asking them this question right after he says, here are the ways in which I'm inviting you in as a disciple of mine to live, to be meek, to be mild, to mourn, to comfort those. I am calling you to live this way. And now he's asking, are you? Because it is possible that you are not. This is a strong warning passage. In essence, Jesus looks around and he asks a simple question that you and I are abundantly aware of. What is wrong with this world? Just scroll through your news. I was taking a quick look this morning just to familiarize myself with some of the things going on in the world. And it's a lot of mess. There's a lot of hard things happening we don't even have to talk about the pandemic. We can talk about lots of other things that are happening, war and persecution. We can talk about oil being spilled off the coast of Peru and flooding the coastline. We're going to send Zoe Vandermoss off to Peru to be with some of our, our missionaries later today. And there they have a place that's been, the environment has been taken over by oil. I'm just naming a few. There's lots of other ways. Jesus is saying, look around the world. and He's asking the question, what is wrong with it? And when he says that the salt can lose its saltiness and the light can lose its luminescence, he is saying that the heart of the problem is in the hearts of people. Look around your community. Crime, destruction, education problems, government problems. There are lots of things that we could point to and say there are so many needs and they're deeper than those things. They're deeper than politics. The problem is deeper than our social media. The problem is deeper than uh, where we spend our money, how we spend our money. The problem is deeper than education. The problem is deeper than these institutional things that we tend to point to as problems. The problem is much deeper and much closer to home. It's in the heart. It is in the heart. It's in the heart of those who inhabit the city, who inhabit our communities. It's in our hearts. How does Hebrews talk about the heart? The author, as he's talking about the word of God, he says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and spirit of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So the word is meant to help us discern the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Why those two things? Because those are the two most important functions of our hearts. We don't just live off of instinct. We live in a system that helps us decide what to do and how to do it, who uh, to follow and who not to follow, where to spend our money and where not to spend our money, what to believe and what not to believe. We don't just respond on instinct but on thoughts and intentions. And the word of God is there for us to expose those things. The word Jesus is there to expose that for us. 
So Jesus is saying, as my disciples, you are to follow the system that I have created and I have shown for you of living. You're to decide in the same way that I decide and how to live and pursue your life in the ways that I did. See, the cities are decaying. Our communities live in darkness because as sinners, we desire the things we should not desire. As sinners, we purpose the things we should not purpose. As sinners, we believe the things that we ought not to believe about this world. The problem is a heart problem. The metaphors are helping us to understand these communities that we live in. And the result is salt losing its saltiness. The result is light being hidden. The result is that we fade into the scenery. We fade into the background. when We are not living the way that Jesus has called us to live. He says, when my people live like this, when they live without taste, without distinction, without pushing back decay, without brightness, they are in the world. And this is something that can only be changed by the grace of of Christ. We are not in the business of heart change. That is not our jobs as disciples of Christ. We are not in the business of converting and changing, wooing someone's heart. We, as this passage says, and we'll look at it in a minute, are in the business of pointing people to the one who does, which is Christ through the Holy Spirit and the grace of God. When God is glorified, hearts are changed. The statement's like a warning sign when you go to the beach. And the sign says, beach good for swimming, except when there's a storm and you look out and you see a big black cloud and you decide, I'm going to go get in my swimsuit and swim. You are putting your life in danger. Jesus says, when salt loses its saltiness, it has no more value. It's as good as filler in the road, throw it out. It fills the cracks. When light is hit under a basket, it is not being used for its purpose. We are to heed these warnings, to diagnose our lives, to look at them and say, how are we living? Are we living into this invitation that Jesus has for us in the Beatitudes? Or are we pulling back because of discomfort, because of persecution, I've been wanting to say this all week. Church, you're called to be salty. We can be salty people. It is okay. It's far too easy for Jesus followers to have no effect. None of us can look at Christianity today in our culture, our community, in our own hearts, in our own church, and say that there's no chance, I love this is the way that another pastor puts it, there's no chance, there's no danger of an insipid, bland Christianity. It is possible. We see it. If we are not salting the world, the world is rotting us, he goes on. There isn't much of an in-between. So what do we do? We need to ask ourselves some questions. Use the diagnostic tool for what it is. Ask questions. Is there any difference between me and the world and my ethics? The way that I spend and use my money the way that I treat my neighbors, the way that I, I work and the way that I, I tend to use my work, the way I treat my coworkers. Do, do I use my work and my coworkers as just a place to get up the ladder a little bit? Is there any difference between me and the world 
in the way I offer forgiveness, the way I turn another cheek? Is there any difference between me and the world? Only the conscience can answer those questions. I'm not up here to tell you if there is or there isn't. I'm up here, like Jesus, to hold a mirror and say, use this passage as a diagnostic tool. Ask yourselves the questions. I've been asking myself for two weeks, and part of me is petrified at what I've seen and how I spend my time, how I spend my money, how I think about other people. And it's brought me to my knees time and time again. And to remember that only Jesus is the one that can change my heart. So I got to come back to him. I got to repent and turn back to him. That's the invitation here in this part of the passage. And it goes on. And we've got a little bit of time to talk about this in part. And Jesus goes through, and, and you read verses 14 through 16, and you're just slammed with an amazing statement at the very end. He says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So in the same way that light in a house gives people luminescence, allows them to see, we are to live our good works out that the world might see them. Not so that you and I might be made much of, not that you and I would, would go down in the history books, not that you and I would be applauded for the ways in which we've served the world, but instead that God, our Father who is in heaven, would be glorified. When you and I live this beatitude life, when we live out the Sermon on the Mount, the world will see it and there will be wonder in their gut and in their mind. They will wonder at why is this person treating me so nicely? Why is this person giving of their money, their time, their home, their resources for me? Why does this person love me so much? I'm nothing but mean and cruel to them. Why, why, why? That's what they will ask. Why? And what's our response? God in heaven. This is what he did for me. My father has loved me. He has sent his son for me to die on the cross for me, for you, for all of y'all, that we might be able to live this way. So it's not because I'm a great person. It's not because I'm awesome, because I'm nice. I don't need neighbor of the year. It's how God can be glorified. This is how a skeptical, unbelieving world will come to know God. This is that what we read in John 17 about the disciples loving each other so well. Do you remember what it said? It's like the world might know that God sent Jesus. This is what Francis Schaeffer calls the final apologetic. That when we live this way, when we live with so much love for one another, the world can only notice that Jesus is real. We live in a world that is either denying God functionally, just in the way that they live, or intellectually denying that he actually exists. But Jesus says, when you live as the salt of the earth and the light of the world, the world will notice and they will glorify God. What a statement. What a statement. They will see the light that shines through us which is Jesus and his characteristics, and they will desire that. Everyone has desires to be known 
and to be a part of something bigger than themselves. Every single person on this planet does. And Jesus says, this is how you can invite them into that. You can invite them in to be known by their Father. You can invite them into this kingdom living that I have laid out for you when you live, when you go and do. Jesus doesn't say, go and preach the gospel here. He says, go show your good works. Both are important. But when we leave here, it's on us to live these beatitude characteristics. I think this passage is remarkable. What a sermon this is turning out to be. Not my sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Be careful here. The Sermon on the Mount is a fantastic and utterly remarkable sermon. Jesus gives us our identity, reminds us of who we are, challenges us to remember that we can lose our taste and we can lose our luminescence. And he reminds us that when you live this way, when you live these good deeds out, the world will see, they will wonder, and they will glorify and honor God. What an amazing statement. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for Jesus who holds all these things together. He comes, he came, he knits us together that we might look distinguished, that we might have distinctive qualities about us, that we would stand out, not for glory, not for praise, not for honor. All of those things are just pointing to you like a sign pointing to God who is in heaven, that he and you might be glorified. Lord, help us. We need so much grace and so much mercy to do this. We are going to mess up. Forgive us. Help us to repent and to turn back to Jesus, to forever seek out that way of living. It's a high bar. We'll never attain it this side of glory. But give us the strength and the comfort, the mercy, the grace, the ability to, to seek it. The invitation is to live this way, to trust in Jesus as our King, that our lives might be so impacted by it that the world would see and that you, Father, would be glorified. Be with us in this church, little c in this church, big C, as we seek to do that now in Jesus' name. Amen.